Now, if you remember, last week we looked at a passage that was mainly about King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great of the Persian Empire. Now, this is at a point in history where Israel uh, had been, Judah had been taken as captives by the Babylonians. And at some point, uh, Cyrus of Persia comes and conquers Babylon. And God promised uh, through Isaiah the prophet that Cyrus the king, whom God will raise, will begin to rebuild a true temple in Jerusalem. And the Cyrus of Persia will allow the Jewish exiles to return home. On the surface, that sounded so wonderful. But as we saw last week, God calls Cyrus his shepherd, and God calls Cyrus the pagan king. God called him his anointed, his Messiah. And that was a devastating message for Israel. Because even if Cyrus allows the rebuilding of God's temple, and even if Cyrus allows the Israel, the Jewish exiles to return home, under Cyrus, Israel will no longer have a king. And under Cyrus, the royal line of David, for all intent and purpose, has ended. And with it, God's promise of David's son and his everlasting kingdom has also ended. And you see, for Israel... Cyrus was a bitter pill to swallow because as things were then and as things will be under Cyrus, there is now nothing for Israel except disgrace and servitude. They won't even have a, a puppet king over them. They are completely in servitude to Cyrus. And this unsettling reality left Israel bitterly complaining. And that's what we saw in the last passage. But here in this passage, God speaks to them of a glorious future that even leaves the prophet Isaiah in a shock and a surprise. And the first thing that we see in this passage is this. Circumstances hide God, and scriptures reveal God. Circumstances hide God, and scriptures reveal God. And so, look at chapter 45, verse 14. It says, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, that is Ethiopia, um, and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. Now, that's a language that intentionally evokes what happened during the time of Exodus. As Israel was led out of Egypt, Israel plundered Egypt and became very wealthy. 
And God is saying her future is once again going to be like that. Egypt, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, the Sabaeans and men of stature will come to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. That's the ancient uh, uh, expression of being in servitude, being in service. And the Lord says, they will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Now think about that for a moment, because at that time, as these words were spoken, and for, for the foreseeable future, all the wealth of the region went to Cyrus of Persia. And at that time, and for the foreseeable future, all peoples served Cyrus. But God, he says, he's going to bring about a future that completely turns the world upside down so that one day, nations will no longer bring their tribute to Cyrus or to any other earthly emperors, but the nations will bring their tribute, their gifts, and their honor and praise to Israel. And one day, the nations will no longer serve human despots, but they will serve Israel and be her servants. And one day, and once again, at this present time and for the foreseeable future, all the nations are worshiping their own little gods, idols made out of wood, stone, metal, gods that cannot speak, gods that cannot answer, gods that cannot save. But one day, the nations will acknowledge that there is no God but the Lord. That's the glorious promise that the Lord is giving to Israel. And this promise of Israel's future glory was a shock even to Isaiah. So look at verse 15. This is Isaiah saying, Truly, truly you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. And the sense of that is this. Who could have dared imagine at that time, amidst Israel's painful loss and disgrace, who could have dared imagine or even hope that her best days were not behind her, but ahead of her? You see, the way things were then, at first under attack from Assyria, and then defeated by the Babylonians and then taken as exiles to lose your home, to see God's temple burn down, and then only to be freed by Cyrus, but to be his slaves, no longer having the promise of Davidic kingdom. The way things were then, God's covenant faithfulness to them and God's loving kindness for Israel could not be seen in the circumstances surrounding Israel. And you see, the way that Israel experienced the world around her and what she could deduce from her circumstances, because nothing around them indicated 
as things were then. Nothing around them, nothing of their circumstances, nothing of their future's prospect indicated to them that God was still faithfully committed to them, that God still loved them. And so the way that Israel experienced the world around her and what she could deduce from her circumstances were completely unreliable as a way of understanding God's heart, His will, and His purposes towards them. That is why Isaiah says, truly you are a God who hides Himself. Because all the circumstances, all the experiences of Israel at that point hid God's purposes, God's loving kindness, His faithfulness. And that is a very important thing to recognize and to realize if neither circumstances nor our deductions about the world can unveil God's heart, His plans, and His will towards us, then what can? If what we see around us, if what we can put together from our experience are in no way reliable guides of understanding who God is, what He has planned, what then can reveal God's heart, His will, and His plans for us? Well, the answer that, uh, that this passage gives us is that it is God's Word. God's Word. So look at chapter 45, verse 14. Thus says the Lord. Now, you may have read that expression so many times to become so used to it so as to dismiss it without thinking. But in verse 14, when we read, thus says the Lord, it is said in the context of Israel, the only guide to reality is what they see around them. And what they see around them is awful. It's hopeless. It's dark. And from what they see and what they experience, there's no sense of God's faithfulness or God's love. And it is out of that context we read, thus says the Lord. And then look again in verse 18. For thus says the Lord. And then again in verse 19. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And you see, God, God makes his heart, he makes his plans known to us in his word. That is why it is dangerous and it is wrong and it is futile to try to divine or discern God's purpose, His will, and His heart according to how we experience the world. Now, the temptation is powerful, isn't it? Because that is all we can see. That is all we can feel. But circumstances hide God. Scriptures reveal God. And... God makes his heart, his will, his plans, his purposes known to us in his word. 
and the world reveals God to anyone who will listen. It is the very mark of idol worshippers to seek after omens and signs, to go get your palm read, to look in the sky for astrology signs. Um, that's the very, very definition, that's the very mark of having no God who speaks to them. We, on the other hand, God's people, we seek God in His Word, and in His Word we find His heart and His will, His character unveiled to us. So, circumstances hide and scriptures reveal God. Second thing, the second thing that we see from God's promise of the glorious future for Israel is that God will save the world. God will save the world. And so there is a glorious future for Israel, the future that they can they cannot dare imagine or hope, but it will be true. The nations will bring their gifts to Israel, not to Cyrus, not to any human despots. The nations will acknowledge that God is in Israel, not in any other nations. There is a glorious future for Israel, and yet it is a little different than they had envisioned because the people of Israel often found her glory and identity as the only people on earth who belonged to the Lord. That was her distinguishing mark, and that was the point of her pride. But we read here that Israel's truest glory and her highest honor will come when the whole world come to the Lord and worship Him. You see, God, He desires the whole world to know Him. So look at verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. Now, on the one hand, that is an incredible comfort to Israel because God did not give Israel the land only to see it empty. He created it and he formed it to be inhabited. And so to Israel, that is a wonderfully comforting promise that God did not give them the land to see it empty. But it is a promise that God will bring them back, that the exiles will return. But it also has a broader scope and implications. Because God created the whole world not to leave it empty, but to fill it with the people that please Him. And because that is God's purpose, God is not merely interested in what happens to one small nation of Israel. And God is not merely the Lord of Israel. But He's the Creator and He's the Lord of the whole world that He made. And He cares deeply for every soul that He has formed. 
and he cares for people from every tribe and language and nation and his desire for them. We read in verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That is God's desire and that is God's plan. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And that is why, that is why Israel's greatest glory must be to see the whole world turn to God. And that is why Israel's greatest glory can only become reality in Jesus Christ. Do you remember what the risen Lord Jesus said just as he was preparing to ascend? In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, what did Jesus say? He said, go, therefore. He said, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Do you see how Israel's greatest glory and honor, to see the whole world come and acknowledge the God of Israel, to worship him, the fulfillment of God's earnest desire to see people of every tribe and language and nation come to him. That is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Go and make disciples of all nations. And what that tells us is this. Even though under Cyrus, there was every indication that David's line had come to an end. And under Cyrus, there's every indication that, that, that the, the royal line of David will never again come in power. There wasn't every indication that Israel needed to abandon and forsake their vision and dream of having a Davidic king, Messiah, reign over them and establish an eternal kingdom, even though that's what it looked like. You see, God is faithful. And in time, Jesus, Jesus will bring back glory for Israel, a glory that they had never imagined possible, and rejoice in God who saves the world. And you know, this is why, this is why missions and evangelism are not just duty. Missions and evangelism is is the very way that God's earnest desires are fulfilled. And missions and evangelism is not just a duty, but the pathway to our greatest glory. And so that's the second thing we see. God will save the world. And the third thing we see in this amazing promise of a glorious future is that God is in Christ saving Israel. God is in Christ saving Israel. Notice how much God loves Israel. Look at verse 17. Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. But we have to realize that Israel of verse 17 is set in contrast against verse 16, 
All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. In other words, Israel of verse 17 is set in contrast against the idol makers of verse 16. And understand and realize this. Many people in Israel worship idols. Many people in, in Israel made idols and bowed down before idols. So the Israel that God loves in verse 17, the Israel that God saves in verse 17, is not Israel as a physical nation, but Israel that are set in contrast to the idol worshipers. Now, this is how Paul describes in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly by the Spirit. That is to say, when in verse 17 we read that Israel is saved by the Lord, this is not saying that God is saving the physical nation of Israel, but all those who have refused to worship the idols, all those who have listened to God's call in verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. This is Israel not in a physical sense, not in a nationalistic sense, but Israel in a spiritual sense. And once again, you remember in Exodus chapter 19, when God led the people out of Egypt, he said to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then in Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, the apostle John, as he writes to the Gentile believers, he says that Jesus has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. What do you think John is getting at? He's getting at the fact that how God, when he rescued his people in the, uh, in the Old Testament at the time of the Exodus, he rescued them so that they might be a nation of priests and a kingdom to God. A calling which they thoroughly failed. But now John is saying that in Jesus, you the Gentiles, you have become a kingdom of priests, a nation that belong to God. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is God's living word who reveals to us God's heart and his will. And we are God's true Israel in Jesus, and we are the ones who are saved with an everlasting salvation in Jesus Christ. God is in Christ saving Israel. God is in Christ saving every man and every woman 
no matter what their physical lineage, no matter where they were born, no matter what their past, God is in Christ saving with an everlasting salvation every man, every woman who comes to the Lord for salvation. That's the beauty and the blessing. That there is no other condition that we have to meet. There's nothing else that we have to do in order to be saved except to come to the only God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, to come in Jesus Christ and have our sins forgiven, to be welcomed and received as His beloved. What idol can do that? What gods of the nations can do that? What gods of the nations ever gone to the cross to suffer and to die for his people? What gods of the nations ever risen from the dead to give us the hope of eternal life and to make us righteous before God? God is in Christ saving Israel. And because Jesus is the living word of God in whom we see God's heart and his will, this is what we can learn today. Your circumstances, our circumstances also, very often hide God's will and heart. The things that you and I experience in life, as far as we can see, there is no indication that God is faithfully committed to us, that he loves us. Our circumstances can also hide God's desires, his heart, and his will. And you know, of course, that the purpose of trial is that we learn not to live by sight, but by faith. But you know, we're, we're really not very good at it, are we? And trials come so that we might learn to live by faith, except you and I, we're really bad at it. And that is why you and I, we need the light of Scripture. You and I, we need the grace of Jesus Christ because it is only then from Scriptures and from Jesus that our faith is armed and strengthened for our many trials. Indeed, God's unmistakable purpose here is that we learn to look to Jesus. Look at verses 22 and 23. The Lord says, For I am God, there is no other. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And then listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. So that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do you suppose Paul is thinking about when he said that? What scripture passage do you suppose Paul was reflecting upon when he wrote that? Of course, this passage in Isaiah. The Lord God of Israel says, 
There is no other God but me, and every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And Paul realizes that is pointing to Jesus. Because Jesus, the Lord of Lords, it is before him that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Do you see here how Jesus is exalted as the very God of Isaiah, the Lord who spoke to Isaiah, and Jesus is exalted as the hope for the hopeless people. And he's the savior of the world with power and with grace to save everyone who turns to him. Do you know Jesus? You may turn to him today. And he will save you. And loved ones, don't judge God's heart by your circumstances. I know the temptation is very powerful. And don't judge his character or the depth of his love from what you can deduce from your experience. Rather, acknowledge Jesus Bow before him, confess his name. He is your salvation forever. And he says to you today, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Through your word, you pointed your people to the hope that is in Jesus Christ, that their greatest longing, glory that they could never dare hope, would be theirs in Jesus Christ. And so we also hope, we also believe. Father, I pray that your encouragement and your grace will be upon your precious children today whose many hardships in life, whose many painful circumstances have hidden your smile and your favor from them. I pray that we, none of us, would judge your love and your heart from what we can see, but that we might understand them truly in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.